basically just for the last 16 months. But the thing we've done, we started with creation, and we've gone straight through the Bible, and today we've come to Christ's ascension. We have a very special thing to do that was rescued at the last minute by Johnny. Um, It was not going to work, and he saved the day. But I want to say thank you first to our Lord for leading me on this ministry. It's been a blessing to me. I thank you to the children. Thank you to all the young people, the wonderful young people who've helped me. And with their parents' permission, I want to ask those, those, everyone who's helped to come today to Children's Church because we do have something to do. Thank you all. Let's give Gwenny a big thank you. And, of course, that means that some of you now have the opportunity to fill big shoes. Well, today we are going to uh, talk about the faithful church. This is the most positive of the churches. And this is one of those you know, churches where we stop and ask, which church are we most like? And we are real tempted to say, we are all the faithful church. But we need to like really dig in and see... What does God really want to say to us about that? Now, that being said, as Danny prayed earlier in the opening time, and I mentioned last week that you will have a chance to participate. This this is going to be in the middle of the sermon. We're going to stop and ask you to share what happened this summer and, and past that in your time that you prayed for five people for five weeks or more. And I'm going to give you a chance to talk, so hopefully you will overcome your fright of, uh, I'll come right to you with my little microphone, and you won't have to even walk up here. Um, if You can stand so I can see who you are, and then we can just have a little time to share. Uh, don't use the name of the person. Maybe you can just use their initial or something to keep them confidential, and then we'll just see what God's up to, okay? So let's launch into the faithful church in Revelation chapter 3, verse 7, Philadelphia. But first, the story about Billy Graham. There was an interviewer who was interested in Billy Graham's many decades of success. And they kind of said, wow, you have done so much. You've really literally touched millions of people. And I wonder, um, do you think that you will receive great rewards in heaven through the impact of your worldwide ministry? Well, Billy Graham answered and he said he wasn't really sure of the extent of his own rewards, because really God is the final judge, but he said that he was very confident that there would be others with greater rewards than him. He told about a faithful elderly woman who prayed for 80 years. She'd been praying every day for her family, for her church, and for her country without fail. And he explained her faithfulness, he thinks, and others like her, that she will receive a greater reward in heaven. But at the end of the interview, Billy Graham said a real key statement. He said, quote, you see, we are not called to be successful. We are called to be faithful. That's a good description of the church we're going to look at today in Philadelphia, the faithful little church for whom God had a big vision. So what does it mean, though, to be a faithful church What does it mean to be a faithful believer in a faithful church? And we're going to look at that as we look at who Philadelphia is. First, let's look at the city itself. 
Philadelphia was founded by the king of Pergamos and named for his love for his brother. As you probably know, if you've ever heard Philadelphia, Pennsylvania called the city of brotherly love, not so much because of how much warmer and more friendly they are, because some say that's an extremely debatable topic for Philadelphia, but because that's the meaning of the name. Phila, philos is love, delphos is brother. So love of brotherly love. And so that's how the original Philadelphia got its name. It was a crossroads on the gateway to Asia. If we can put the map up, Nay, and there it is. You can see it's kind of down in the right corner. And uh, we're going clockwise, and so we only have this in Laodicea next week left. But its notable industry was grapes and wine. So, of course, you would expect Dionysius, the Greek god, also called Bacchus in Rome, the god of wine. But somehow in the midst of, of course, their festivals are going to be all about alcohol and drinking and and such, and wine especially because of the grapes and such, but the church didn't seem to fall prey to that. And there was even in AD 17 a devastating earthquake. This church and the city, really not the church, but the city was rebuilt by the emperor Tiberius, another name for the, the Sea of Galilee was Lake Tiberius, in honor of that Roman emperor. And this is going to come up next week with Laodicea, who's going to rebuild their own city, but this is a poorer city, and so they were rebuilt by the emperor. And so this crossroads gateway, though, many of the people, because they were scared of the aftershocks, went and lived out in the rural countryside. So they're a little bit spread out. So this is a little bit of the background that we have with Philadelphia. So let's look at Revelation chapter 7. Sorry, chapter 3, verse 7. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. Verse 8, I know your deeds, and see, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. So again, as in all the other churches, out of Revelation 1, Jesus pulls some of the descriptors, only he picks for this particular descriptor, holy and true. He holds the key of David. And what is the key of David? It's really about the authority of his kingdom. So it says, I hold the key of David. I'm the one who controls how this kingdom works. I'm the head of the kingdom. I decide who's in, who's not in. It's about my ministry because what was going on, of course, as in many of the other cities, the Jews said, well, no, no, no. To get into the kingdom of God, you have to be Jewish. And if you're not not only a a full-blooded Jewish person, but worshiping Yahweh uh, and, and following all of that, you'll never get into the kingdom. So they felt like they decided who got into the kingdom. But Jesus is saying, no, 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 that's really not true. I am the one who holds the key to David, to the kingdom. And I alone decide who enters into my kingdom and how it will unfold, not a synagogue of people resting on centuries of tradition that they're not even following properly themselves. So this open door meant that Christians, in spite of what they might be being told around them, They are part of God's kingdom. But not only that, God has given them an open door into ministry. And so Philadelphia, being at this crossroads, had 
a lot of strategic locations. It was the end, at the end of a great valley just before you climbed up onto the great central plateau that led into Asia. And so this kind of became a place from which they would launch the spreading of Greek or later Roman culture. And so this is an open door for the gospel to be spread. And so Jesus is saying for a city known as the keeper of the door, he pulls out that idea of who Philadelphia is and he puts it over here to the church and says, you know, I'm the one who opens the door and I have placed before you an open door that nobody can shut. No Jews, no other persecutors, no people worshiping Dionysius can stop you from taking the kingdom to the people out there around you and into the surrounding Asian place because, of course, we're in the current country of Turkey with all of these churches, but they have an open door. And then verse 8, the last half says, I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. And by the way, this is the second longest letter of the seven letters, and it's the only letter that has no correction whatsoever. Now, Smyrna, there wasn't really correction per se, but they were the fearful church, if you remember, and Jesus was exhorting them not to be afraid and to let fear dominate their life. So you could say, technically, that Philadelphia, out of seven churches, is the only one that Jesus doesn't have some correction, something to say, you need to do this a little bit different. We find they did not fold under pressure, even though they didn't have very much strength. He said, you have little strength. And like so many of the other churches, probably not worshiping Dionysius, being thrown out of the synagogue, meant that they had very little resources because they weren't part of the community at that point. And so they were, like so many of the other ones, little strength, and yet that didn't stop them. They were maybe worn down by the lack of resources that... was allowed to them by society, but, you know, they still pushed on. Because God opens doors when we prove faithful in the little things, faithful to his calling as we start and launch out. But one of the keys in being faithful like Philadelphia is to realize that you too don't have a whole lot of strength. Now, we tend to want to, okay, I can do this, I've been trained, or I have this experience, I've got this personality, and look at all the stuff I can accomplish. That's not really God's perspective. It doesn't matter if you're the shyest person sitting here today. God can use you in a big way. And so he says that true power comes from God, not from us. As Paul said in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, God says to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Imagine that. God's power is made perfect in your weakness. And yet we try to hide our weakness, don't we? We don't like to admit that we can't do something. Here's Paul's response in verse 10. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Because I realize I don't have a lot of strength in my own flesh, in my own ability, in my own background to do things that matter spiritually for God. It needs his Holy Spirit because when we're really dependent on the Spirit, it releases God's power. It doesn't mean we can't accomplish anything, but we're talking spiritually for the kingdom of God. You might have the biggest church, a mega church, thousands of people coming. If you do it in your own strength, how far is it going to get? You can have a crowd... And you can build a big crowd of people to come, 
but are you really building a church of disciples? And so Paul is saying, when, you're, when we're weak and dependent on God, that's when we're the most useful to him. Because Philadelphia was having a big impact, even though they didn't have a lot of strength. So when God finds faithful people, he will use them to minister to needs. A need may appear small at first, maybe a neighbor that needs a helping hand, or a work colleague who's discouraged. But an open door for sharing may grow wider, and that's what I want us to pause in a minute and share about, that open door that maybe God, you started small, you've been praying for these people, hopefully, but acts of compassion are going to open doors that no one can shut. So number one on your outline, a faithful heart opens doors to ministry. A faithful heart will open doors to ministry. I quoted Ray Stedman last week about um, Sardis, but now he says this about Philadelphia or about us in being a church like Philadelphia. How often do we go through our days without ever asking God to use us or expecting him to do anything through us to touch the life of someone else? Do you ever feel like that? God can't use me. I don't even ask him because I'm just a nobody. Well, Ray Stedman goes on. He says, we miss most of our divine appointments to reach others because we are not looking for them. And we're not looking for them because we have little experience of the power of God released in our lives. That's kind of sobering. Okay, well, one more story to deal with this first point that a faithful heart opens doors to ministry. In 2000, one of the teams competing in the playoffs for the Little League World Series came from a very poor area in Venezuela. When the team arrived, they had only one bat, and four of the players didn't even have proper shoes. The Venezuelan team could have easily said, we're too poor, we lack the resources to play at that level, so let's just don't go. But they went through the open door anyway. As word of their lack of equipment spread, sports manufacturers stepped in and supplied them with all the equipment they needed, bats, gloves, shoes, everything needed to play baseball. That Venezuelan team would go on to become the Little League World Champions. If God sets an open door before us, he will not withhold what we need to go through that door. So what open doors is God placing before you? If you say, I have little strength, then I say, praise God, you're just like the Church of Philadelphia. You will have what you need for God to supply it, even if it's just words, what words to say. Like John shared, you know, you might share, you might not get a great response, and then all of a sudden, sometime later, it might not be a couple hours later, it might be months later, years later, you will have an opportunity perhaps when God opens that door. Revelation 3.9, Jesus says, I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, pretty strong words, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. See, God's faithful ones, those who are even in little strength, holding on, have a secure future. So he promises that one day their persecutors will recognize who they really are, Jesus' followers, God's people, 
And they come from the synagogue of Satan, which are human agents energized by Satan. See, we sometimes think that a person who's causing us anxiety or resistance, that's our opposition. Our real opposition, though, according to Ephesians 6, is ultimately not flesh and blood. It's not religious extremists. It's not atheists. It's not liberals. It's not a difficult family member. Our real enemy is Satan, who opposes anything and everything to do with God. So verse 10 of chapter 3, Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that's going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. So God says, you're secure. I will, I will proclaim you before men. But I also want you to know when the trial comes, at least in your case, this faithful little church is promised they will be kept out of the hour of trial. Now, of course, you can imagine that commentators love this verse. And so it's often used because of the worldwide reference. It could well be a reference to the rapture, the rapture and the seven-year tribulation that will follow, and that's talked about in Daniel 9 and Revelation 11. But it may also, or instead of, have an application in their time, meaning there might be a time of, of empire-wide, known world persecution. And of course, we know from history that the church was under huge persecution after the book of Revelation was written, and it was worldwide. This was the Christians worshiping in the catacombs and all that. So we don't really know and have written records, but perhaps in the midst of that time that the believers in Philadelphia, because they had been faithful, were kept safe by God and didn't endure all of that trial that the other churches would endure. But the principle for us is that no matter what the circumstances, God cares for us. So number two, a faithful heart activates God's protection. It opens doors to ministry, but a faithful heart will also activate God's protection. Now, that's not a promise that you will be safe bodily, but you'll be safe with your soul. God doesn't promise to keep us away from anything bad. There's no guarantee even that someday you won't have to give your life for Jesus. Who knows how things could deteriorate in our society in the coming years, decades, And it may come a time where you will be persecuted for standing up for who Jesus Christ is. But God says, I will be with you. He doesn't promise the believers through history they would never be martyred. He just says, I will have you safe in my hand even while you are going through that experience. Your soul will always be protected. And so God calls us to be faithful, not to be safe. And that's kind of hard for us in this world, isn't it? We really like the idea of being safe. And I'm not talking about being reckless and dangerous, but God says, just trust in me. Verse 11, I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. Now, coming soon, of course, we see that a lot in Scripture, and we think, gosh, it's been, you know, getting on to 2,000 years since Jesus says, I'm coming soon. You know, how soon is soon? But we think soon means like it's going to be in the next few days, which, of course, the early church thought a lot of that too. But soon, in this case, really means without delay. And, of course, you know the Second Peter verse, right, in verse 3, sorry, chapter 3, verse 8, do not forget this one thing, dear friends, with the Lord a day is like a thousand years, 
and a thousand years are like a day. So Jesus says, I'm coming soon. It's not even been two days yet. So by thousands of years, reckoning, right? But it means he will come when he has finished all that he needs to do on earth. When each of the people he has called to himself have come to Jesus and we have fulfilled the great commission to the extent that Jesus has asked us to, then he says, I will come when my purposes for this present age and there will not be a delay when that time comes. And so what are we to do in that day is a thousand years? We remain ready because he could come at any point. He could come today and we would be, need to be ready and faithful to live according to his teachings his, and his calling to be godly people. But if we just shrink away and say, you know, I'm just going to give up my faith, he says, Hold on to what you have so no one will take away your crown means you could lose that crown, which is probably rewards, or perhaps it might even mean that your faith was never real in the first place, even if you held on to it for decades. But when times got tough, maybe it was never a real faith. And John says in his epistles, they went out from us because they really were not of us. And so there could come a time. I had a friend who led me to the Lord when I was age 18, and years later, he walked away. I still don't know. Is he not a Christian? Was he never a Christian in the first place? Um, Or is he just a fallen away person? He kind of lost whatever salvation that he kind of had. It wasn't maybe full. So I don't know. But we're told that there is a way of losing your crown, at least of rewards. But the Church of Philadelphia did remain faithful. Today, in Turkey, where there are only 160,000 Christians out of 75 million people, of those 160,000, 1,000 of them are somewhere around the area of what was once called Philadelphia. The town is now called Alashir. Imagine 160,000 Christians all across that country, and in one little area, there's a thousand of them. And I mean, that's a huge concentration for Turkey, because Karen and I did do that seven church tour and got to see these sites and talk to a Christian guide, and it's tough for them. And so imagine, here's the only church of seven, and we find in one of the most strongly Muslim countries with the fewest Christians that there are a thousand Christians in this one little corner of Turkey. I think that's kind of amazing. I think it had to do with the fact of who this church was even 2,000 years earlier. So God will keep us from what he wants us to not experience and what he wants us to experience, but we will always be safe in his hand. Verse 12, the last, the first part. The one who overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. So the reward for the overcomers was fitting in a city that was terrorized by earthquakes. You know, you have stability in this place. And so in an earthquake, you know, if you have ever seen the ruins, what's usually left of the ruins but the pillars, right? You know, the, the overarching things, which I forget what those are called off the top of my head, but, you know, that big triangular thing that, the, that sits on top of those pillars, that falls over. But the pillars remain, and so what Jesus is saying, here you are with all these earthquakes, but with me you have stability. And so God's promise is that we will be pillars spiritually in his temple. So what fears do you have 
that need God's stability? What things are really making you insecure that you can put in his hand and claim your right as a pillar? One more little part. Verse 12 finishes, I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And if that's not enough, I will also write on them my new name. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So the second reward is that they not only have the stability of being a pillar, but they have a permanent name, the name of God etched on them, Jesus' name inscribed on them, which symbolizes their eternal ownership and their never-ending citizenship, yet more stability. And it's kind of also a little side note, Philadelphia had their name changed twice after it was Philadelphia, then it became named after one of the Roman emperors and then got named after another Roman emperor and then eventually got called Philadelphia again. But today it's called Al-Shahir. But God's name will never change. You will not have somebody come along and change your spiritual name in God's eyes because he is the one who holds the kingdom. He's the one who opens and shuts the doors. We know that nothing will change in the hand of God as far as who we are and our safety in his hands. So number three, a faithful heart provides stability. An open door to ministry, it activates God's protection and it provides stability. So do you feel stable right now? Is your inner world filled more with peace or with turmoil? Think about that. Is Jesus your stability or maybe your own resources? When you think about what makes you secure, do you think about your house, your retirement, your possessions, your work ethic? You work hard so you will always provide your abilities because you could lose all of that. You know, we look at a video like that and we think, well, yeah, that's Africa. That kind of stuff happens there. It doesn't happen here. But imagine what we're really saying in a place where you notice there was no running water. You notice the big, tall, little cone-looking things. Those are pigeon houses where they raise pigeons for food. The guy on the bicycle, that's how they get from village to village to share and teach and evangelize. Bicycles. So compared to us, they have little strength. Wouldn't you agree? And yet look what God is doing. Because it isn't about being successful or having a whole bunch of our own resources. It's about being faithful. Are you willing to be faithful like the church in Philadelphia, even if you think you don't have a lot of strength? Are you willing to walk through open doors of ministry? And do you feel owned by God and identified with his name so you have his strength to go out? Let's pray. Lord God, help us to look with the eyes of your spirit, not at the eyes of our flesh that sees the world and sees all the darkness, sees all the disunity, sees all of the resistance, but that we can look with your eyes to see open doors because we are doing it in your strength, your strength, God, not our strength. And so help us to hold on to that, to walk through those doors because we know that we are called by your name to be pillars in your temple And our strength comes from you to be a pillar, not from ourselves. So help us to walk through that open door. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.